Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching another episode of the WeVA podcast. I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Madeline Holsebos, one of the world's leading scientists on table representation learning and understanding structure and AI. I think this is just one of the most exciting topics. I'm so excited to talk to Madeline. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Wow, fantastic, Connor. Thank you so much for the invitation and great to, great to be here. Just one correction. I'm not a doctor yet. Oh, sorry. But <laughs> no, no, no. I'm about to actually hand in my thesis today. So, uh, no, it's almost accurate. <laughs> almost. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I actually had the same thing where I did, I submitted my dissertation and then did a podcast with Bob like right after. So, awesome. Glad to be <laughs> part of that. But so it's successful timing, I guess, right? Yeah. 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 So, th so this topic of table representation learning, I think this is just so exciting. I've been trying to understand the role of structure in vector search for so long. And, I think kind of a, the the question I'd want to kind of set, set the stage with is to understand, you know, tabular data, it's always has this narrative of, you know, all the world's, most of the world's data is in tables and people have this mix of like numeric categorical features that they organize and to just kind of understand like um, the intersection of that in embeddings and how you kind of see that. Um, well, I think in terms of the intersection of, of tables and embeddings, I think I think it's always been very confusing to people um, as people, well, I think now m most of the research has been focused on, you know, language embeddings and uh, just, you know, uh, very raw, raw text embeddings. And, and then um, everyone is of course very keen to adopt such techniques and models and embeddings directly for tabular data. But I think what has been often misunderstood is that tabular data isn't as simple as, as just text. Um, so there are many intersections though between the two. And of course, many tables also contain text. But as you said, there's just a lot of structure in tables, you know, columns all relate to each other, rows relate to each other, um, but they have also very specific properties uh, that we, I'm sure, will get uh, to in a later stage. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a hard challenge and interesting challenge to also see how we can tailor all these, you know, representation learning techniques towards embedding, for example, numeric data as well, mm. and see how they can perhaps complement each other. Yeah, well, I, I and I, I think I didn't mean to limit it just to embeddings. I mean, kind of this whole idea of machine learning on tables. And I know things like, you know, table to SQL is one of these topics that we'll cover in the podcast. And so I guess that kind of idea, I want to explain more, like, so embeddings of numeric properties. So maybe like you have a patient electronic health record and you'd have like an embedding for the age attribute. So is it is this kind of the thinking like you you take like a, a table row that would describe you know electronic health record maybe just to stay in that one and instead of maybe translating it to text and sort of putting the text translation of the tabular row into like open ai embeddings you instead have some way of learning representations for tabular patients ah uh, yeah so i think there are quite some flavors to to this task one of them is indeed for tabular machine learning, where indeed you have row-wise embeddings and want to perform some kind of classification task on top of that. Mm. So that's one big field that is now actually coming up with um, pre-trained models such as TAP-PFN, 
very interesting to to check that out. It was uh, coming out last year. Um, and you can just use such embedding models on top of, indeed, for example, healthcare data to classify, for example, diseases, perhaps, although it's, of course, um, well, relevant to first evaluate that on specific uh, use cases and domains. Um, but then there's also another field that is that has been training these models across like millions of tables to, for example, uh, retrieve embeddings to service the semantics of columns, for example, to generate metadata. So, you know, if you want to build a data model and um, perform, for example, data validation on all such columns that, you know, contain H, Hs, for example, of patients, um, it's very relevant to understand how, you know, different kind of tables relate to each other. So mm. what actually I've seen a lot is that different healthcare providers, they want to integrate different sources of tables um, of their data, and then they want to integrate this data together. But because everyone has different concepts to refer to H's, for example, and different mm ways to specify such attributes it's very hard to map a column of ages in one table to another um, so this is a, a very interesting use cases that can be uh, performed if you have you know accurate semantic embeddings of table columns for example yeah i think as i was studying your work and learning about this kind of semantic type detection for columns that was quite new for me to to have this idea of you're looking through a table and you're like what is this column uh talking about right is it, I, i'm almost like I'm, I'm very like kind of at the crossroads of where to go next in our conversation because we could talk more about this kind of column uh type detection or um, that idea of like table embeddings like not just individual patient level but searching through the whole the whole table i find that to be so fascinating so yeah, maybe if uh, we could stay on the type detection, we'll come back to the whole table embedding level. But this this semantic type detection, can you just kind of, yeah, like the beginning? Because I, I imagine this is kind of new for a lot of people. Yeah, so I think one of the, the, the key tasks in many data management and many data analysis applications is driven by the semantics of columns. So indeed, you know, what do columns really represent? What's in that column um, in like real world concepts? So for example, with the, with the example of ages, you want to label that with like standardized semantic types, hmm. age, address, and there are like millions of different types that you can think of, but then all in a standardized way. And this is actually a key task for table comprehension. So basically, table understanding, as you might also see, for example, analogous to, for example, images where you have object detection, you want to understand, you know, if there is a, you know, a cat in an image or something like that, you want to have something similar for tables to understand what these tables actually contain. Hmm. But this can also be used for, for example, data discovery. Um, if you have accurate embeddings or representations of columns, um, and you can generate metadata such as semantic column types from that, then you can use that also for data discovery, for example, or recommending data visualizations for specific tables, um, given that mm. the tables contain certain semantic types. 
Yeah, I think the timing on that is amazing with uh, Snowflake acquiring Ponder. And I listened to Doris Lee, things like the Stanford seminar, this like kind of uh, data discovery, like kind of uh, recommendations on analyses and visualizations of your data. And I guess I, I'm, I'm so just so curious, like I, I've seen your work on Git tables where you've extracted millions of CSVs from GitHub. Very cool. Like, I love the data collection. It's, it's always awesome. But so, so you have all these tables. And now you're now you're trying to say I know like maybe two three out of the five columns. Let, let me try to use that and the values to infer the type of the fourth one. Get, maybe help me further understand just kind of like the application of the type detection of the column and sort of the the context it sits in. Um. So ideally, we want to train machine learning models over all these tables to perform, for example, semantic type detection, um, labeling table columns with semantic types. And we want to do that also for new and unseen tables. Hmm. So that's basically the idea. And we can do that in, of course, very different ways. You can even just look at the header. So for example, the column name, hmm. um, but the, the values in these columns are very, you know, they provide very important signal to what these columns are about, of course. So typically we try to embed full columns um, to predict the semantic type of it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so maybe looking at the distribution of the values and so yeah, with that kind of thinking, I'm very curious, like how language models and sort of, you know, chaining, maybe you, you have like how you can call the pandas functions like df.describe is kind of like a common function that like gives you all these views of your data in pandas. How have kind of the language models help with that interpreting what a column is in, in the characteristics of a column? Well, I think that's a, that's a very interesting one. And basically where where I myself started off with um, was with word embedding. So assuming hmm. that many tables actually contain textual data, and this is a severe limitation actually of this approach, um, what we did back then is just trying to map every cell value in a column to, I think back then we had like Glove embeddings. Um, so we basically tried to, to aggregate all kinds of word vectors extracted from, from column values. Hmm. Now, I think there is, you know, with representation learning, and um, this has been extended to tables as well with table representation learning, we see that typically what, what, what is well, most common to do is serialize entire column columns, like cell by cell hmm. into a sequence and then provide it to language models, basically. And there are kinds of like adaptations of the uh, attention mechanism to also learn, for example, relations across different rows, across different columns. So there are many like tailored approaches to adapt such uh, language models to tables as well. And this is super cool. This has enabled actually very interesting applications for you know, beyond table comprehension. So beyond semantic type detection, this has enabled, for example, question answering, fact verification over tables. And it's really, really super cool to see that. Um, but of course, there are also limitations to such approaches. 
Yeah, I think it would be a really nice transition to asking more about your work on that kind of uh, table-based question answering. I think we've seen a lot of, uh, kind of like in the retrieval augmented generation tooling world, we've seen a lot of uh, text-to-SQL kind of things. And yeah, if you could just continue on how you see that table-based question answering uh, application. Yeah, I think it's, so one of the driving forces of uh, Git tables was actually that most of these models, for example, um, uh, pre-trained table models for question answering, they had been trained on tables from the web um, and assuming certain structures of tables that were slightly short-sighted. So uh, there's, you know, so many specifics to tables that uh, you cannot just, you know, assume these models to, to uh, work with out of the box. Um, but for question answering, what, what I've seen is that uh, when you try to serialize these, um, these columns and rows, one thing that is typically missed is that there is, you know, for example, properties such as row order insignificance and column mm. order insignificance about in databases or in relational tables. And what, what is interesting about these, these current pre-trained table models for question answering is that they can be very sensitive to such characteristics. So one mm. of the, the driving forces of before, for example, Git tables, but also um, more analysis uh, work that we've been doing with, for example, observatory, um, is to try to figure out how well these table embedding models generalize to different applications and different databases. And I think one of the shortcomings now is that, well, we have many steps to make still when it comes to scalability. So these models have been trained on, well, relatively smaller scale um, data sets of tables. Now, very recently, a huge table uh, collection has been introduced mm. as well by Proximate Labs. Very cool to, to see where that is going. Um, mm. This data set is called Taplib. And then I hope that these models get, will also become more robust, for example, to, uh, for example, small semantic perturbations in tables. So what we've seen with observatory is that which is a, an analysis tool for um, trying to understand what table embeddings, how robust they are, basically. Mm. Um, one of the things we found there is that if you make very small changes to, for example, the question you ask um, or the table that you ask a question on, even though the semantics or the meaning of the question remains the same, um, they don't really capture that well. And I assume that when we scale such models up, that, you know, as with large language models, these models will also become more robust to such semantic variations, for example. I think with me, I'm trying to understand, um, like, the, the the language model kind of uses, like, uh, pandas or SQL APIs to kind of answer symbolic questions. Like, it, it could take in the schema of the table, and then it can format, like, you know, select from where, <laughs> like, the, the clause. And so I'm... I'm trying to understand like how you would have uh, like instead pass in the table directly to a machine learning model that would output some kind of uh, answer. The... Um, you, you mean if, if that is what we should be doing? Yeah, I, I guess I'm, 
uh, sorry if this is, isn't Super Bowl form, but I'm trying to understand that. The, I guess for me, it's like um, these tabular machine learning models. I guess they take as they take as input a table, right, or maybe a, a, a row, and and then produce the answer based on you know by processing the table with some kind of like maybe column wise attention and this kind of thing. And so I'm just really curious how that differs from say uh, just interfacing my large language model with like a pandas or SQL API where it can. Um, if, it, if it's doing symbolic, I guess like if it's doing symbolic aggregation, like what's the average age of country music singers? I, I say that a lot now, I guess. But like then, you know, it just has to like select uh, from the singer's table where genre equals country music, right? So I guess that, that kind of... Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So these pro this this problem of question answering uh, specifically has been approached from two directions. Indeed, one mapping natural language questions to SQL and then executing that on a given table, where of course the table schema is integrated into that, uh, because you need to understand or need to map the like SQL attributes to a to a given column. I think that's actually a very very good approach to take and it's i think a very logical one also given the sequence to sequence uh, modeling approaches that we that we currently have um and i think we'll we'll see what i i think it's a it's a very interesting approach um to take but it's it's of course also limited i think um with what applications you can serve with that mm. um but I think the the other approach of I think they they kind of relate to each other uh, as well a lot. Um, but for example, for fact verification, where you want to um, give a fact or check a a given fact against a certain table, then we might need different mm -hmm. embedding and different approaches um, to this problem. Um, but I think text to SQL. Um, I think it's, it works well for relatively simple, basic cases at the moment. And I'm really keen on seeing how well it works if our queries, our questions become way more complex. <laughs> and very recently, there is a new benchmark introduced that actually tests text-to-SQL uh, models for way more complicated schemas, but also more complicated questions. Because so far we've been only working with with very small questions hmm. on a single table, and I think as soon as you want to, you know, ask more complicated questions on your data, then uh, it will become much harder to generate relevant SQL. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. I, I've studied a little bit of like the Spider data set for text to SQL, and I per, I have a bit of experience with this because I've been working on the uh, text to GraphQL gorilla with Weaviate's GraphQL API, and so yeah, this this thinking of like these complex schemas, uh, like with Weaviate, we kind of have like a collections like abstraction where you have like a uh, you know like student, teacher, book. <laughs> these are like separate uh, classes, and so. It's like you'd only retrieve kind of one schema at a time to format the query for one schema. Hopefully that makes sense. But like if you're if if you're like joining, I can imagine like complex joins is where this problem gets really difficult. And I actually think that would be a really nice transition into the embeddings of tables as a whole, because I imagine there's maybe something to the join. It, it kind of with what you were saying earlier, with um I have this electronic health record where I have patients and I have age is one of my column values. Maybe we want to try to join this to some other table, but I'm not sure 
what which table, right? So I need to kind of like search through tables to maybe do that kind of joins. Yeah, I think especially for for such cases, you really need to embed the underlying data as well. You just mapping column names to um, natural questions and like generate SQL queries from that, I think won't work. Um, if you want to, for example, integrate data from very different sources. Um, so I'm, I think there's actually a later, a, a newer benchmark called BIRD. And BIRD really provides more complicated queries that all these models really, really uh, find challenging. So hmm. I think it's really interesting to see that such applications will, will you know, empower us to ask natural language questions over our data. But there are definitely many, many challenges ahead. Also, when it comes to, for example, um, the input limits, um, if you want to embed tables, that's a, that's a severe limitation um, because of the amount of context mm. that you can provide. Um, if you would then need to scale up um, across different, different tables, this becomes already quite challenging. Yeah, I think that there, there's so much to that I want to keep. I, I, I guess I really like this kind of like, I, I, when I thought back about like electronic health records and embedding patient rows, I really like that kind of rag where you would retrieve similar patients and then maybe have that kind of, you know, that the supplement in the inputting input that comes from that. Yeah, I, I guess um, yeah, I, I kind of want to stay more on these um, complex questions, this text to SQL thing. And I'm very curious about this kind of like, um, uh, like query execution planning. Like, I, I don't know too much about how SQL does this, but I, I know that there's like a lot of underlying mechanics to like how to optimally uh, do a query. Do you think about this kind of thing as well and how um, machine learning could help? Yes, yes, that's a, that's a great question. I have been thinking about this a lot, um, but I haven't been working on this. And to be honest, I think no one really has. So, I but there are so many opportunities, I think, when it comes to query optimization as well. But this is just, you know, mm. guesswork at the moment and needs more experimentation. But I think there are very interesting opportunities when it comes to, for example, caching or, uh, mm. you know, as you said, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting um, direction to explore further. Super cool. So uh, kind of pivoting topics a little bit, I kind of want to talk about um, the kind of, I'm very curious, like what you think about graph neural networks, because I've heard you talk about uh, like column wise attention and these kind of particular architectures for tables and relations. And I think, uh, you know, graph neural networks, it's like <laughs> always trying to figure out what, what it's going to be, uh, what that's going to become. I have seen some interesting approaches um, that indeed use graph neural networks to try to model the relationships in tables. And I think they are very successful. They can be successful, but I have, I'm, I must admit that I'm personally not a big fan of, of graph neural <laughs> networks themselves. Um, I don't know why it's just something that, you know, uh, I don't know. It hasn't really taken off so far, I think. Um, but definitely there are different ways to also, you know, perceive tables and you can also see them as, 
you know, they can be well represented by crafts as well. So I think there's definitely value in that. Um, but I haven't looked into this myself. Yeah, I, I guess it's it, it almost is like, uh, I guess the graph neural network, you need to have like the whole graph as input. And I always thought that was kind of like, uh, it makes the inference kind of uh, challenging. And so I guess kind of another thing I'm curious about is your current sentiment on, on like XG boost and like, especially in kind of like search and recommendation that like, having a uh, symbolic features about your customers to then like re-rank your search results with an XG boost model is quite a popular thing. And so, yeah, generally I'd love to just get your take on XG boost. I think it was super interesting last year. Um, we organized this workshop table representation learning for the first time at Neurips. And by hmm. then I've been mostly focusing on data management applications where we were more interested in the semantics of data in generating metadata hmm. with, for example, semantic column types. Then when we organized this workshop, um, people really related this to HGBoost directly. Anything on tables, people think like, no, but HGBoost, <laughs> you know, outperforms anything. And I was like, oh, but this is a different task. You know, that's row-wise mm. inference and mm. not necessarily, um, you know, across, you know, generating general metadata from, from different tables. Hmm. And I think now we see that these fields actually approach each other. Whereas, for example, XGBoost is typically trained on one given table. But now, as we see also um, more representation learning being effective for learning relationships across different tables hmm. for tabular, like row-wise inference, like XGBoost, and I think we see now more and more approaches that try to try to embed rows and see if that works for such cases as well. And I think they have been shown really competitive for um, against XGBoost and other tree-based um, mm. classifiers. So, so that is super interesting to to see and come together because before all these. Um, like more representation learning approaches, they also learned representations from one table. And now they start to explore trying to learn representations and like transfer semantics from other tables to do this kind of inference as well. And I think that's a super interesting area to, to see being explored. Yeah, I think, well, I'm, I'm, I guess it's like this idea of, merging tables and, and and i guess well generally like this generalization of uh symbolic that that would kind of be my uh why i don't actually prescribe people to train an xg boost to re-rank their search results is because the generalization probably won't be as good as if you uh translate it to text and use like a cross encoder that has a text is kind of my perspective is that because when you have the symbolic things you're like really like uh the machine learning model is like really fitting to these like high frequency patterns I think compared to kind of text translations where you have these like rich embeddings that I've, I think generalized better. Uh, that, yeah, that's kind of how I see that whole like generalization of tabular models, but I, I definitely am not an expert on it. <laughs> like, oh. From your perspective, because you've been, uh, of course, coming from, from a different uh, perspective, um, more on retrieval and um, re-ranking. So how do you, how do, for example, customers as we've yet use XGBoost to, to do re-ranking? I guess it, with recommendation, it's like 
you have like age, gender, maybe purchase history, these kind of maybe tags. And like I did some kind of like customer churn analysis and maybe I have a tag on you based on that other mod, what that other model said about you. And so I have all these features that I then use to re-rank like uh, the shirts I'm going to show you for this, your home feed or your search query. So that, that's kind of how I see it mostly. But I can definitely, I'm, I'm definitely starting to understand this better from l- listening to you talk about it is this idea of like, maybe I have a data set of like, I have like my CRM data set and I, you know, I might've come up with some columns to describe my customers with that someone else from the company has different columns that they've been using, right? And now we're going to try to merge these tables and it's going to be like, is the, does this column agree with this? Is this actually the same column kind of? I guess, it, yeah. I think what is interesting about the approach of representation learning for tabular ML across uh, across different tables is that you can actually learn general patterns. I I can imagine that you know different companies, although their data might be formatted very differently, the same patterns might hold and be relevant in in other companies. For example, in health, it, it doesn't really matter how how the data is specified, if you can embed this and, and preserve the generic factors hidden in these, for example, rows that might represent patients or customers, hmm. I think it can transfer such, you know, some patterns from one, say, context to another. Hmm. And I think that's that's a, an interesting thing that actually boost, I think, will not be able to do it. It just doesn't have that, you know, high capacity. Hmm. Yeah, that's really the, it, well, I, I think maybe it would be really nice to kind of like um, come into So this idea of transferring representations from one table to the other, I maybe like to have some examples of visualizing it. Like I imagine maybe I go to archive and I get out like all of the experimental tables or uh, I know with your GitHub experiment, how you got millions of tables from GitHub. Can we maybe have like some examples of like, I guess just like a transferring of table to table more so? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of um, beyond, for example, the data integration um, problem. Um, thinking of... Well, what we what we might see, for example, in in certain certain health health databases, healthcare databases, you might find specific patterns relating certain ages with certain diseases, mm. um, and I think such such general patterns might transfer from you know from one city to another city, um, from one country maybe even to another country. Uh, another, I think, good example in, in that sense is you have all these like open government data portals and there are like millions of, ta- well, not millions, but like thousands of tables on there. Um, and I think there are just general patterns to extract from these tables, for example, um, relating GDP with, I don't know, other economic factors and, mm. and try to understand the world better from that and i think if we would we could use such if we could embed that and like retrieve such data for example using Weaviate, then we could use you know we could augment machine learning use cases in companies for example that want to use that economic economic data for i don't know in 
inference on their very specific company uh, goals. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That really helped me understand. I, I, I've seen this data set called like Wiki Tables that was like ext- also like extracting. And yeah, I, I'm really, I, I think I'm definitely like uh, my understanding of the whole thing is growing as we've been talking about the, all these kind of tables and trying to merge them all together into having this view of the world is so interesting. And yeah, I guess for me, I've always kind of been thinking about like, it's almost like with vector databases and knowledge graphs, graph databases, I think about this a lot is like, um, what's the best way to kind of represent a fact? Like, can you just have like a natural language sentence that's like a fact or do you need like a, you know, like a a knowledge graph tuple or like a tabular data entry? So how do you kind of think about just like that idea of, um, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the other approach of instead of kind of merging tables into a big, big table, I kind of like translate them into facts and I try to see like if the facts disagree with each other kind of in, in natural language for like embedding based retrieval. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I think so. I've always been very driven by observing what data is around and how data is stored. So one of my observations was that most data is collected and stored, consumed through tables in relational databases, for example, or or perhaps less structured in CSV files. So I always took that mm-hmm. perspective and see that the, that tables typically drive very high value use cases from churn prediction to healthcare solutions and so on. So I've always been very, you know, fond of tables because of, because of that. But I, yeah, you could, you could also um, present facts in, in different ways, but I think the power of tables is that they are so structured and they provide all these very, you know, machine readable interfaces to it. Um, and I think that makes it a very suitable, a suitable format um, to present data and facts in particular in. Um, sometimes, you know, tabular formats have been taken a bit more flexibly. So for example, Wikipedia, now, now we need to extract tables from Wikipedia and try to restructure it in a very structured format. Um, I think if we would all present it in you know very basic tables, I think that would help a lot, um, and could also, yeah, I think, mm. I think tables are just super rich also because you can complement them with metadata. Um, you know, they they come with SQL for example um, as an interface to this data, and you can learn, for example, patterns across that. How other people, for example, query specific tables, you can learn all kinds of signals from that. Um, of course, similar, yeah, similar principles or ideas hold to, to less structured data, for example, just text. Um, <laughs> but I've been just coming from, okay, tables are really everywhere in databases. So they're, you know, they, they take up the majority of the data landscape, the organizational data landscape. And they just serve so many high value use cases across data analysis pipelines. So that's actually why I've been focusing on, on tables specifically and structured <laughs> data. Um, but yeah, there are different ways to to presenting facts and uh, analyzing that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. 
I mean, yeah, like, I guess, uh, like, looking at, like, uh, if you're in the NBA and it's, like, who's the leading rebounder, <laughs> like, like, stats, you'll see it in, like, the tables. And I love that. It's a good way of presenting data. I think that really nails it. It makes me question. I'm very curious about, like, this, um, you know, now the language models can see, right, with, like, the GBT4V. Uh, what do you think about that kind of, like, that the, they can they can see, so you might want to, like, uh, visually give them a table language models might want to pass visualizations of tables to each other or is that like a native language but but generally like i guess this concept of like being able to see a uh, data visualization yeah i think that's a super interesting idea um and i've been discussing this with, with someone this week actually that you know when people look at at tables they kind of grasp certain patterns to to understand it and i definitely think that the visual representation of a table just as an image of it yeah i'm i'm, I'm super curious to see <laughs> how this you know how this can help also for for the you know for embedding tables and and you know getting insights from them uh, i haven't seen much of the results i think just one paper on this where i was like oh that's that's interesting but um it's just in very early stages to see to see how it's used. I think so far um, researchers have been evaluating the um, the capabilities and the challenges of using large language models just without the visual um, mm. uh, medium. But and they've been trying to understand how you should best input a table into, for example, ChatGPT. Um, how sensitive it is, for example, when you um, ask a certain question and then swap different rows in a table. So tables, mm. by, by default, by, by their nature, are, well, from a relational perspective, um, the order of the rows is insignificant, so that doesn't carry meaning. But some of these large language models can be very sensitive to that, just as they can be sensitive to very small semantic changes in, for example, a column name, just the, the same semantics, but just a different word, for example, can have actually quite some impact. So I think that that opens up new opportunities for for research and seeing how you know how we can integrate properties of relational tables um, into such models. And I think the, the multimodality will at some point also extend um, towards tables, but I'm, I'm very keen to see where this more like image pers perspective um, and the, the representation of a table from an image, uh, where that will lead, lead to. I'm very curious mm. to, see, to see that. Yeah, I'm. I'm also like. Um, I guess an, another question I have is how the the structured, uh, like the, in in uh, kind of like the vector search world, there's this one idea that you have like an image of a dog, and then you have metadata about the image, like uh, you know maybe the type of dog, the age of it, or color, and then you maybe like uh, embed the features as well, and maybe average these embeddings. So you have some embedding of like uh, golden retriever, and then you average that with the image embedding for the dog. Um, do you think that kind of integration of like maybe more unstructured embeddings with the structured components, do you think that, that, you know, that that can add to the quality of the embedding? Oh, for sure. I think that's such an interesting comment. Actually, um, with this latest project called Observatory, we do some analysis that relates to that. So the notion of 
you know, preserving relations between objects in the embedding space. And I think an uh, analogy into the relational data model is functional dependencies. <laughs> so given two columns in a, in a table, uh, we might perceive certain relationships between these columns. So for example, uh, the capital, if you have a, a column with capitals and a column with country, they would, well, assuming uh, you would always see the same values for the same countries. So for example, Amsterdam is the capital of the Netherlands. You wouldn't expect other relations than that. And we've been analyzing um, table embeddings to see, and uh, particularly column embeddings, to see if these embeddings currently preserve such relationships as well. But so far, we haven't seen that. So, and I think there is also from um, the knowledge graph embedding space. Uh, so you have, for example, Trends E, uh, which is a, um, an approach for preserving such relationships across entities in knowledge graphs. And I think this would perfectly extend also to the notion of functional dependencies um, to embed values in, in tables. And then we can use such embeddings if once they preserve these functional dependencies, so these relationships between, between columns, then we can also better use that, for example, for data imputation, um, mm. um, which then serves perhaps downstream a machine learning model. So I think there is definitely interesting interactions between these two, yeah, between these fields. And yeah, I think well, it's an interesting suggestion, actually, perhaps more generally, um, to see how certain concepts of, of tables, how that can be preserved or how we can find such relations between certain semantic concepts in the embedding space even beyond functional mm. dependencies. I think that's an, uh, yeah, that's an interesting um, approach and we should definitely see if we can preserve such relationships semantically. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I, I guess like, um, that this is kind of, yeah, like you mentioned trans Z, that kind of like uh, embedding of a particular kind of relationship. Like, I guess right now it's like semantic similarity is just like the one size fits all for all. <laughs> But like instead, you, if you had some other relationship and then uh, if you're within this radius, that means that you kind of, uh, you know, might also have this relationship and then we store the structure of that. Yeah, it's also interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think. And um, one thing that I was interested about from from WeVH's perspective is, but this is perhaps a little bit off topic, but I was just reminded of this, but from a retrieval perspective, but um, what kind of embeddings do you do you currently see? So have you seen at Weaviate, you know, do you mm. have customers or, I don't know, users um, that actually use or retrieve information and embeddings of tables? Um, I haven't seen it personally. Oh, well, actually I do. Well, I remember a conversation like, I remember earlier there is a bit of like um, how do you evangelize vector search with the uh, SQL people and and that was kind of an idea is like um, I guess back then it, would, it it was like you would maybe have like an auto encoder and I mean this was like before the zero shot model I think now the the current prescription would be could you translate your uh, your table to text right to yeah. put it into these embedding models but 
I haven't personally seen too much of that. That's why I, I just find this conversation to be so kind of like eye-opening to me as I, I had never thought before reading your paper on Git tables and I had never really thought about this idea of searching through multiple tables or having, you know, like a million tables. It's, I think it's quite creative to be thinking like that. And yes, yeah, so I, I would say it's quite novel to search, uh, to, to use like vector search and tabular structured data. I think, yeah, so one, I think, avenue, interesting avenue is now with retrieval augmented uh, generation that if you, I can assume if you have very accurate embeddings of, I don't know, maybe table rows or columns or maybe even full tables, just one semantic vector of a, of a table, I can imagine that if you would then, you know, this would help out with with reg as well uh from a wave perspective mm. i can imagine that so much data is eventually mm. stored in tables that is relevant to provide as context to llms i can imagine that that soon people will start to embed their tables as well and i'm just super curious to see how you know how they will retrieve like construct their embeddings and um keen to see that uh, unfold yeah, I think maybe two things I see on that is the first thing is um, with WeVA, you define a schema where you define which property you're going to vectorize. So say I'm vectorizing content, but then I also have, um, I, I don't know, like metadata about the page, like uh, say I'm uh, I'm vectorizing a, the podcast clip and then I also have like what number of podcasts it is, who the speaker is, maybe how long the podcast is. And then I can, I can search with the embedding of just the content and then pass in the symbolic data around the object into then the language model. And then one other idea I see from uh, Llama Index is this kind of recursive retrieval. And I think you might find this quite interesting. This is where you would uh, search through Wikipedia pages, like based on their title. And then whichever one is the top match, that one might have a, a table inside of it. And so so like it's like a two-level query where first you're searching through the titles of Wikipedia pages. That took me to billionaires, let's say. And then within billionaires, there is a table that is like, you know, age and exactly how much money they have. <laughs> and then you would do the symbolic query within the linked uh, table. Super cool. Interesting. Super cool. Uh, so maybe wrapping up the podcast, I want to ask you kind of like, um, you know, this kind of like what's next question, like what kind of future directions are really exciting you? Yeah, I think on that... Um... First, I'm just so focused on finishing this PhD and you know starting starting uh, starting up new things. One one particular direction that I'm interested in is going from you know insight retrieval from questions to generating questions from tables. So basically, table to to question, I would say, um, because now um, most like data teams, let's say they they rely on domain experts to formal, you know, formulate their, their questions. Fortunately, we can now do that with natural language and then translate that to SQL. So that already makes it much easier for domain experts to access relevant data. But one thing that I'm interested in is see if we can somehow learn what relevance questions are for a given table to ask so that we can kind of enrich um, the expertise um, without needing the, the query, let's say, because mm. you need, yeah, I think there's just, 
I think there there is this kind of stat that says that we only use one percent of the data that we have in in data warehouses, or maybe it's five percent. I don't know specifically, uh, but we just use really little data. And I think if we would be able to learn access patterns, you know, what kind of questions people ask on certain tables, I think we could then kind of try to move towards more recommendation systems for insights. Saying for a given database, like, hey, we see that, I don't know, the number of of diseases, for example, in this area has gone up. And then I think that could be really powerful. So that's something that I'm I'm really eager on to move towards. I, I love that. I think that's so inspiring, that kind of offline question discovery and especially with this perspective on tables and not just kind of like the long tail of documents. That's all just so amazing. I, I also am really inspired by that direction going forward of a more offline kind of processing of your data and, and that kind of uh, like self-directed research. It's really amazing. Madeline, thank you so much. For, oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on the excitement and I'm, I'm just also very excited to see you know startups now ramp up in this space um more research you know it's just increasing in in embedding uh tables properly and applications of that and you know as we touched on for example internal database applications for example query plan execution optimization i think there's also so much space to fear, to still explore on the application side um, so that's something that I'm very keen on uh, as well. But yeah, it's been really amazing to talk to you um, about this topic. I'm really excited. Hey, Madeline, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I've learned so much from this conversation. I'm sure our listeners will as well. And congratulations so much on the on the PhD. Uh, it's super well deserved. So many amazing publications and this whole table representation learning is just super interesting. Thanks so much, Connor. Thanks for having me. It was really awesome.